one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You are listening to When Diplomacy Fails podcast. Thank you for downloading and listening to this episode. My name is Zach Twomley and we are going to continue our coverage of the 1916 Rising and all the stuff that goes along with it. But first, I'd just like to remind you that this podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network and that within that Agora Podcast Network, there is a load of podcasts that you should definitely check out. Everything from Wittenberg to Westphalia, our latest member podcast, which you should check out, to American Biography by the wonderful, as always, Tom Daly. Every month, the Agora Podcast Network promotes a particular podcaster to you guys, with the aim of getting them more downloads, because we're all pointing you towards them. This month, you might be aware, Royfield Brown is the podcaster of the month. So check out Royfield Brown by searching him in iTunes, Google, or anywhere else, and you'll be greeted with his vast array of projects that range from How'd You Make It Conquered the World, to Ten American Presidents, which incidentally I starred on, to Mid-Atlantic. Go and check it out. Royfield Brown is a experienced, professional, and pretty darn good podcaster, and you would do yourself a good service by listening to his vast catalogue. Anyway, with that out of the way, I think we can get down to 1916 once again. We are officially halfway through our coverage, so it brings me great pleasure and joy, because this has taken so much work, to say this. Thank you very much for your support and for your continuing interest in what's been a very personal but also rewarding project for me. And even though it's taken a good bit of work, and even though it's been hard work, and I've had to ignore my family and friends and the usual struggles of a podcaster, you know them. But I'd just like to say a big thanks, because your support has made it all much easier. Your financial support is still welcome, and it has been forthcoming. But if I could make a special plea, since we are halfway through the series, come on guys, I think I'm allowed to at this stage... If you would like to go to wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, that is wdfpodcast.blogspot.ie, you will find a convenient link where you can donate to the podcast and make all of Zach's dreams come true in the process. And you might be holding on to those last few coins that are just jingling in your pocket and thinking to yourself, what can I do with this money that is a meaningful thing to do? Well, let me tell you folks, you will never find anything more meaningful to do with that amount of money than making Zach a very happy guy. Okay, so now we can actually get into it. 1916, guys, episode 9. Let's do this. 
Last time, in a kind of two-parter, we sought to delve into the mindset of those behind the Rising's more romantic and idealistic aims, as well as explain the structure and behaviour of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. In this episode, we finally reached the point of no return. We have at last got to the stage in our narrative where we can examine the outbreak of the 1916 Rising. Within, you'll hear for yourselves the drama of the event, as well as the motives that led certain individuals to deceive others, and the consequences that followed. We will examine the Rising in a kind of circular fashion, analysing some key aspects of its initial outbreak while repeatedly pulling back to give context and clarity to certain other issues. It means that the full details of the Rising will stretch into the next few episodes, but by that point we'll hopefully have a better understanding of what it all meant, and why people felt, spoke, and reacted as they did. If that sounds good to you guys, then welcome to the miniseries. When Diplomacy Fails presents... 1916 A special centenary miniseries exploring the context, characters, and controversies of the most significant act in Ireland's modern history, the 1916 Rising. I do not grudge them, Lord. I do not grudge my two strong sons that I have seen go out, to break their strength and die, they and a few, in bloody protest for a glorious thing. They shall be spoken of among their people, the generations shall remember them, and call them blessed. The Mother, a poem by Patrick Pierce, written before the 1916 Rising. But where was the slavery, and therefore the tyranny, of which Pierce spoke? At that time, every Irishman was entitled to vote, could join the civil service and the British armed forces, and enjoy all the other privileges of loyal subjects of the king. The Great War had brought a boom of prosperity to the Irish farmers and traders. A cartoon of the time showed a farmer reproving a friend who had mentioned a rumour that the war was about to end. Wisha, tis you who always has the lonesome story. In Pierce's eyes, that was the trouble. The Irish were being fettered with chains of gold. Historian Father Xavier Martin, writing in 1916, Revolution or Evolution, 1967. The development of a republican tradition committed to violent revolution is usually explained in evolutionary terms, with each stage in the tradition's development seen as an increasing commitment on the part of revolutionaries to the use of violence. Historically, it is true that in the Irish case, the politics of violence have evolved in organisation, and perhaps even in ideology, and have always produced factions committed to the use of physical force. What has made Irish politics unique is the extent to which violence has been raised, to the level of myth. This myth has been reaffirmed in the periodic rededication of individuals to violence and death, self-immolation to bring redemption to the individual and the country. Historian Sean Farrell Moran writing in his book, Patrick Pierce and the Politics of Redemption, The Mind of the Easter Rising, 1997. 
The actual plans for the Rising in the months beforehand seem relatively straightforward. A German vessel was to land arms on the west coast of Ireland, these arms would then be distributed amongst the volunteers, and a German force would then be landed at some point in Ireland as well. These elements would be geared towards an island-wide revolution. The weapons and German force were vital if the Republicans were to have even a remote chance against the British. This was where Owen McNeill came in. Owen McNeill was a pragmatist who did not see the value in going out to be willingly slaughtered. He wanted his forces in the Irish Volunteers to have a sporting chance, and thus he recognised that the contingent parts of any plan had to be successful, or else the Volunteers would be going out with little hope of victory. In mid-February 1916, two months before the Rising, McNeill had written a memorandum in Irish Historical Studies, an important academic journal of the era tied in with groups like the Gaelic League that McNeill was so involved with, wherein he stated, To my mind, those who feel impelled towards military action, on any of the grounds that I have stated, are really impelled by a sense of feebleness or despondency or fatalism, or by an instinct of satisfying their own emotions or escaping from a difficult and complex and trying situation. It is our duty, if necessary, to trample on our personal feelings and to try face every sort of difficulty and complexity, and to think only of our country's good. This ties in with the point I made before, that McNeil would only rise if plans were in place for success, and if the cause was justified. When McNeil wrote about satisfying their own emotions, he was alluding to those in the Irish Volunteers and Irish Republican Brotherhood, whom he knew to profess more extreme aims and means than his own. Yet McNeil commanded the Irish Volunteers, so the military council of the IRB needed the numbers he would bring and the support he could muster if they wanted any numbers on the ground when it came to rise at all. At the same time, if the uprising was to be the doomed affair with limited chances of success that Pierce and his fatalistic colleagues seemed to expect, then numbers may not have been a priority after all. At the very least then, if they didn't need the numbers McNeil provided, they would have to ensure that he could not raise the alarm and prevent those that did want to take part from going out on Easter week. Historian Dermot Ferriter wrote that Patrick Pierce revelled in deceiving McNeil, but such deception may not always have been on the cards. The plan that the military council relied upon above all was the landing of German arms and the promise of German armies, with the landing of an Irish brigade formed from Irish prisoners of war converted to the Republican cause while in captivity among them. This latter contingent was to be formed by the agitation, diplomacy and negotiations of a number of men, led by the example of Sir Roger Casement. Casement was a humanitarian and an English gentleman, a passionate writer and a capable fighter. He was many things at once, but by 1916 he had become convinced of Ireland's need for independence, and of her right to fight for it. He had helped orchestrate, by his name value alone, the agreement of the German Empire to send troops and men to fight against the British in Ireland, presenting it as the opening of a new front in the war against the British, and co-opting the help of the Irish Republican movement, which Casement portrayed to the Germans as far stronger and more numerous than it actually was. 
Since his retirement from the British service in 1913, Casement had played an important role in forming the Irish Volunteers, in organising the landing of arms for the Hoth gunrunning the following May, and he remained a high-profile convert, so to speak, in Irish national groups like Sinn Féin and the Gaelic League, showing in particular a keen interest in the Irish language. The message of Irish independence disseminated by the more extreme elements of Irish republicanism seemed to have captivated him more than that of moderate nationalism. Before long, he became a committed member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and went abroad upon the outbreak of the First World War to secure foreign aid for its Supreme Council, which he remained in regular contact with. In late November 1914, he secured a declaration from Germany to the effect that The Imperial Government formally declares that under no circumstances would Germany invade Ireland, with a view to its conquest or the overthrow of any native institutions in that country. Should the fortunes of this great war, that was not of Germany's seeking, ever bring in its course German troops to the shores of Ireland, they would land there not as an army of invaders to pillage and destroy, but as the forces of a government that is inspired by goodwill towards a country and people for whom Germany desires only national prosperity and national freedom. This was an important claim for Berlin to make, since it would have the effect of easing the minds of those nationalists, and more moderate republicans like MacNeil, who only ever viewed a foreign landing as self-interested and detrimental, in the end, to Ireland's actual prosperity. By May 1915, Casement had gathered enough contacts to help develop a plan from his base in Germany, which he communicated to members of the IRB back in Ireland that would listen. Most of Casement's time was spent in Limburg-Anderland prison, where he sought to persuade the 2,000 Irish prisoners there to declare against Britain and form an Irish brigade. By 1916, Casement had actually enjoyed little success with this, and though he had organised for 20,000 rifles to be sent via boat to Ireland's west coast, he had not been kept up to date with the plans for the Rising that the IRB's military council were developing. Only in late April were the German arms sent by boat, with no German officers to accompany them. With little prospect of success in the event of any armed action then, Casement determined that the German government had merely used them, and had had no intention of actually helping Ireland break free. He elected to return to Ireland via German submarine, landing there in the days before Easter 1916, but being weak from a repeat case of malaria, he was unable to move on and was captured in County Kerry on Good Friday, a few days before the Easter Rising was due to start. So with the plans for the Rising going belly up, Owen McNeil obviously never in his right mind would have supported it, so Patrick Pierce would have to try a different approach if he wanted to get his forces on side. He would try some deception. Dermot Ferreter echoes this when he states, The failure of the German aid to materialise meant a change of plan and the duping of Owen McNeil, the chief of staff of the Irish Volunteers, by using the Volunteers as an army which would declare open war, unconcerned with the cost to themselves and others. When the IRB's military council was informed that Casement's mission had been a failure, they tried to implement Plan B. Rather than use German soldiers in the abundance of arms that were meant to accompany them, they would have to fool MacNeil into siding with them 
and use his militia for their own ends. To fool MacNeil, they would have to persuade him that his worst fears were being realised, as well as convince him that arms and support were forthcoming from the Germans. Pierce seemed to have no problem lying to MacNeil on both counts. He claimed that the British were en route to disarm the volunteers, validated, Pierce claimed, by a document sent from Dublin Castle, Britain's seat of authority in Ireland. This document, that Pierce just happened to access, was a forgery, and it demonstrated how far Pierce and his colleagues were prepared to go to deceive MacNeil. But they also informed him that he shouldn't despair, because actual arms were en route to Ireland, who by this stage hadn't quite yet landed in Ireland. This double lie on the part of Patrick Pierce, who acted under the directives of the IRB Military Council, had the effect of painting a picture to MacNeil that was completely contrary to the facts. A week before Easter 1916, MacNeil seemed to be on side with the plan. The ruse seemed to have paid off, and the volunteers he led were apparently soon to rise alongside the IRB's military council. Dermot Ferreter reminds us that, while it is tempting to see Owen MacNeil as having his head too deeply buried in books, making him easy to deceive, he was more aware of the strands of radicalism within the mythical Irish Republican Brotherhood than many historians have given him credit for since. We must understand at the same time that MacNeil had grown accustomed to seeing the regular drilling of militias for the purpose of resisting any future attempts to disarm them and the volunteers, but under the surface, for the purpose of ensuring that the Irish volunteers were well versed in soldiery, so that the expected uprising wouldn't be too much of a shock for them. Much like the conspiratorial league of German officers during the Second World War, were able to plan to assassinate Adolf Hitler right under his nose by presenting their plans as theoretical contingencies which would increase the Fuhrer's security, so too were the military council of the IRB able to lull MacNeil and others into believing that they were preparing for the worst while hoping for the best. As we've established before, MacNeil's position regarding the justification for rebellion against Britain was clear. In the words of Dermot Ferreter, It could only be a defensive reaction to a British attempt to disarm the volunteers, and only if the rebels had a reasonable chance of success. By success, he meant success in the operation itself, not merely some future moral or political advantage, which may be hoped for as the result of non-success. Again, we see an allusion to MacNeil's dismissal of blood sacrifice or needless death. MacNeil did not want some future moral or political advantage that would come from the non-success of a failed rebellion. MacNeil wanted military victory, or at least a sporting chance in achieving it. Thus the landing of arms and the support of Germany was critical to him. If any of these factors were absent, and if the British were truly not coming to disarm his volunteers, then MacNeil would rescind the order to rise immediately. If the military council had expected MacNeil to simply refrain from questioning all that he had learned, then they underestimated the man by a wide degree. Only a few days after being told that his worst fears were coming true, MacNeil dug a little deeper and discovered to his horror that not only were the arms lost and Casement's mission a failure, Roger Casement was in fact travelling home to persuade Ireland and MacNeil to halt the plans for the Rising, since he actually believed that MacNeil was more in control of events than he was, 
but the British were not even coming to disarm his precious volunteers. The Dublin Castle document that Pierce had given him had been a forgery. Owen McNeil was livid. The IRB's military council were the mastermind behind the plan of the Rising, but they were not its only cog, nor did they and their immediate colleagues represent its sole participants in the end event. James Connolly's Irish Citizen Army, formed upon the failure of the 1913 lockout and the brutal behaviour of the Dublin police at the time, was a significant pillar of the militarist edifice that went out to fight on Easter week. So concerned were members of the military council that James Connolly would launch his own socialist uprising against the British, that they ended up co-opting him into their plans, which he went on to take an active part in. Similarly, the Irish volunteers led by Owen McNeill were technically against the Rising, owing to their leader's condemnation of it, but that did not mean that elements within it did not sympathise or demonstrate a desire to participate. In the months and years that followed, historical accounts would refer to volunteers fighting in the streets, this in itself a reflection of the fact that not all volunteers were determined to act as their chief of staff declared they should act. Most significantly for my female listeners, since I know you exist somewhere, even if Anna warns you to back off, the female contingent of the Irish Volunteers formed in April 1914, called the Irish Woman's Council, or Ban, played an important role in the Rising too. Its members included the renowned Anglo-Irish Countess, Constance Markovix, who was in regular contact with W.B. Yeats during the period. One of Markievicz's first acts in the Rising was to shoot dead a policeman near Stevens Green. Indeed, this unfortunate policeman was one of the first casualties of the Rising, and he was representative of the kind of needless deaths that were to follow. In the subsequent years, Cumberland was mostly penciled out of the Rising, since their involvement did not suit the kind of Catholic, class-conscious, male-dominated society that Ireland was being built into, but recently the contribution to the Rising by women such as Markievix is coming under greater scrutiny. Of course this does not mean that I approve of their actions any more than those of their male counterparts, but it is worth underlining the fact that men were not the only ones to take up arms at the time, just as it is historically important to denote the fact that the IRB Military Council made use of whatever support it could get its hands on at the time. Whether from Connolly's Irish Citizens Army or from dissident individuals within the Irish Volunteers. But back to MacNeil, and one of MacNeil's most dramatic acts once he discovered Pierce's deception was to issue a countermanding order in the paper, which had originally called for three days of manoeuvres to begin on Easter Sunday. This had always been the agreed-upon code word for the armed action to take place. It would have been understood by those within the Volunteers and Irish Republican Brotherhood, as having a far greater meaning than its appearance implied. It was on Easter Saturday's paper that such orders were countermanded by MacNeil, giving rise to mass confusion within the ranks of the volunteers, who now accepted that the activities had been cancelled, and went back to their business for the Easter weekend. It also had the result of mightily confusing the British, who had looked at the original plans to drill for Easter Sunday as representative of proof that a rising was on the cards, With the order coming from MacNeil himself that such activities were to be cancelled, though, the word from Dublin Castle was that the police and soldiers of Dublin 
no longer needed to be on standby. Perhaps they would move against the ringleaders after the Easter holidays, but for the moment British and Irish officials in Dublin Castle saw no need to rock the boat in an atmosphere of war on the continent and tension at home. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The problem was that Pierce and the military council had been prepared for just such a contingency. They did not need MacNeil's military support and forces so much as they feared the result of him quashing the entire venture before it got off the ground. In the event, despite the lack of arms, the failure of Casement's mission, MacNeil's condemnation of their actions and the lack of the popular will of Ireland for the actual rising itself, the military council of the IRB for so long a self-appointed dictator of the fate of their homeland, elected to carry on with their plans for the Rising regardless. It was this group, minuscule by comparison with the rest of the country's wishes, that decided that country's fate. While the decision had been irreversibly made to go ahead regardless, damage control had to be undertaken to prevent MacNeil's countermanding order from reaching too many people. With this aim in mind, despite the fact that MacNeil had already placed it in Saturday's paper, the military council targeted Bulmer Hobson, a prominent member of both the IRB and Volunteers, and a former member of the IRB Supreme Council. Hobson had resigned from the Supreme Council in mid-1914, after having fallen out with Thomas Clark for allowing John Redmond to assume leadership of the pre-war Irish Volunteers, which don't forget before it split over whether to support Britain in the war or not, numbered almost 200,000. To Bulmer Hobson, Irish independence was an end that he was more than willing to fight for, but I tend to view him as a kind of inheritor of Michael Davitt. Michael Davitt, if you remember from previous episodes, had been a prominent member of the IRB as well in the 19th century, only to drift more towards politics and eventually the Irish Parliamentary Party following land reform. Bulmer Hobson never realised this complete a change, but historians have tended to view him as the voice of reason within the Irish Republican Brotherhood at this time, if there could be such a thing. Utterly opposed to a pointless bloodbath in the capital of his homeland, Hobson agreed with MacNeil and supported him in countermanning the order for manoeuvres set for Easter Sunday. Since Hobson was a renowned member of the Irish Volunteers as well, he held a position of quartermaster, 
he had been able to cultivate a relationship with Owen McNeill, which I feel may have contributed towards his declining extremism by 1916. In contrast to McNeill, though, Bulmer Hobson was held at gunpoint from Good Friday to Easter Monday by IRB members who acted under the military council's instructions. Again, their aim appears to have been to prevent Hobson from spreading word of cancellation any more than McNeill would, but word escaped nonetheless thanks to the newspaper advertisement warning of the cancellation. Once it was clear that it would have been too late for Hobson to do anything about the rising, he was released. Now thoroughly embittered after being held captive by his former colleagues, and having seen his worst fears regarding an undercurrent of fatal extremism within the IRB being proven true, Hobson went into hiding to avoid arrest in the days that followed, and didn't keep himself appraised of the Rising's events. Meanwhile, the man whom Bulmer Hobson had once convinced to travel to the United States in order to seek funding for his school only to swear him into the IRB in 1914 once he returned home, Patrick Pierce, now took part in the opening act of the doomed rising that would tear Irish history apart. The steps taken and decisions made, which enabled Patrick Pierce to stand before a small crowd in front of Dublin's General Post Office on Sackville Street and read out the proclamation of the Irish Republic on the 24th of April 1916, is one we've tried to detail in the last eight episodes, but... We're still not finished, and probably never will be. A combined force, approximately 1,400 strong, comprised of members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, of the Irish Volunteers, the Irish Citizens Army and Cumann took part in the Rising. The Irish Republic was proclaimed a few minutes after midday on Monday the 24th of April 1916, after the IRB's military council determined to go ahead with the Rising, with or without McNeil's help or Casement's arms. The result was a rising the fraction of the size that had originally been imagined, with minuscule odds of success and the drama being organised almost exclusively around Dublin, with other regions of Ireland mostly cut off from what was happening there. It was in Dublin that the drama played out over the course of Easter week, as rebel commanders held on to different buildings and positions within Dublin city, shot at soldiers and civilians, and challenged the British and Irish soldiers sent in response to dislodge them. The aim was resistance. A few attempts were made to march on important targets, such as the aforementioned Dublin Castle, the loss of which would have been a monumental blow to the British administration in Ireland, and a symbolic victory. Despite the fact that Dublin Castle was anemically defended, and that the city itself was mostly sleepily revelling in Easter festivities, Irish rebels found little practical success in their ventures. A retreat was made from outside Dublin Castle, in the face of the spirited defence of the five or six or so armed guards that held the outside of it, though the officer standing guard outside Dublin Castle at the beginning of the confrontation was shot dead straight away. He was an Irishman. On the first day, the rebels mostly occupied themselves with seizing and holding the positions they had been assigned, 
as the British scrambled to make a proper response. The military tactics behind taking certain points of the city, such as Jacob's Biscuit Factory, but not others, such as Trinity College and Dublin Centre, have always struck me as odd. In the same vein, the decision to dig trenches and barricade the road leading up to and around Stevens Green, which is essentially a large park surrounded by high-rise buildings and hotels, left the rebels horrifically exposed. The sheer brainlessness of the rebels' instructions to hold a biscuit factory, the Royal College of Surgeons, the Four Courts, the South Dublin Union and even the GPO itself, are all telling of a lack of military experience in my opinion. Either that or the rebel leadership did not expect to be successful, something which would tie into what we discussed in previous episodes regarding Pierce and other IRB military council members like Sean McDermott, Joseph Plunkett and Tom Clark who wished to fight to the end and believed that their sacrifice and symbolic deaths would represent the real victory. After the confusion of the previous days, with McNeil's countermanning order in the papers for all to see, few expected any true armed action of any kind to take place. Yet when they learned of the proclamation or heard of the actions in Dublin and travelled to take part, or indeed just happened to be in the know and be aware of the fact that the Rising was about to take place, they did not anticipate that they were taking part in a venture designed purely for the sake of blood sacrifice. This is why it is difficult to define the 1916 Rising as such. With men enthusiastically participating in the name of all that they had marched for in the years before, principles varying from the preservation of home rule to an opposition to the First World War, it is hard to say what each man fought for. Did the average volunteer or ICA member simply believe that the Rising was going ahead after all, or that McNeil had changed his mind? The uncertainty regarding the beliefs or expectations of the rebels becomes more multi-layered when you consider the kind of things they spoke of as the Rising progressed. Some spoke of German aid. A belief was professed with sincerity that the Germans had landed a force in the West and that this force was marching on Dublin. Some bystanders thought that the Rising itself was a manifestation of the war on the continent, unexpectedly spilling over into their daily lives. The actions of the rebels had created a sort of ring around Dublin's city centre, but there was no apparent ambition to take positions of true strategic importance, such as Dublin Castle or Trinity College, as I mentioned, while there seemed to be no real rebel plan beyond holding out. If the rebels really wanted to succeed, attack and the seizure of key regions, as well as the removal of British officials and soldiery from the immediate area, should have been the objective. Instead, barricades were mounted along streets, and in the absence of a police force, since a few had been shot at already, looting and resulting fires became commonplace. The image of the Rising was one of chaos, rather than a clear directive or determined end goal. The lack of real military purpose by the leaders causes the ambitions of the Rising to centre on dramatic or superficial aims, such as blood sacrifice, martyrdom, or hosting a dramatic event that their contemporaries could record and disseminate. We should be wary of viewing the event in too black and white a term though, since individuals other than the IRB's military council went out that day. So what on earth did James Connolly, for example, a committed Marxist turned Catholic nationalist revolutionary, have in common with the ideas of blood sacrifice? 
an idea which only the year before, not to mention throughout his entire life, up to 1916 really, he had condemned. Yet Connolly chose to partake in a rising with hopeless odds, commenting to a colleague once the affair began that we are going out to be slaughtered. How do we reconcile these two contradictions of a man like Connolly, a man who is upheld and known today as progressive, a man ahead of his time and a passionate advocate of social reform? Perhaps it is the Unionist historian Robert Lind who captures the confusion regarding Connolly best when he wrote the following in an introduction to James Connolly's Labour in Ireland. The question of Connolly's mood and purpose in the insurrection is one to which one returns in perplexity again and again. Did he expect to win? Did he expect the Germans to send assistance over the wreck of a defeated British navy? Did he imagine that Ireland would rise and defeat the most gigantic British army that is known to history? Did he really believe that a rifle was of any avail against modern artillery? I have discussed these questions with many people, and everybody has their own answer. Dermot Ferreter also notes that we are sorely in need of a comprehensive, fully sourced and detailed account of the Rising, sort of like what I have sought to do here, but in far more detail, and accounting for far greater uses of sources and opinions. I could create a podcast series on just what the historians or journalist has to say on the Rising. There is that many interpretations and opinions on 1916. And the reason why I opened with the disclaimer that this is a story and not the story of that event is because I simply don't know the bare facts about so many aspects of it, just as surely as my fellow humans and scholars are in the dark. Why did Connolly make a choice that was so contradictory to his character? How many members of the IRB's military council genuinely believed in the cult of blood sacrifice? How many individuals expected the Rising to actually succeed in a military sense? Had he not travelled to the United States, would Patrick Pierce have become the figure we know him as today? The list goes on and on, and in this kind of chaotic atmosphere that the Rising was, we can only do our best with the information that we have, and it should be emphasised again that we don't have all that much. Just as surely as Connolly's character is up for debate, so is Patrick Pierce's. To the end, the man was full of contradictions. J.M. Singh, one of the most famous playwrights of the age, released The Playboy of the Western World in the early 1900s to a nationalist backlash, which claimed that the English author had depicted the Irish as stupid, simple and purely rural figures. It was Pierce who reviewed the play in a newspaper and denounced it for its brutality and glorification of violence. This was a decade before the Rising, before Pierce's transformation from shy teacher to mythical enigma, As recently as March 1912, after all, he had stood shoulder to shoulder with the likes of John Redmond and argued for home rule, but historians that focus on his ideological development often jump straight to the contradictions of his favouring of bloodshed and contrast to what he had said about it in the past. He had deplored violence in the previous years, and despite his subsequent upholding at the purifying power and value of war and death, was most likely incapable of even shooting a rabbit in the wilds of Connemara, to paraphrase Dermot Ferrer's memorable line. By the end of the 20th century, when Pierce's image and stance was able to mean so many things to so many people, the point was that you could find the Pierce you wanted from the evidence. Was he a warped genius, a central Republican figure, the commander-in-chief of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the incredible orator, 
the educational reformer, or the anti-democrat and harbinger of a century of violence to his beloved island? Was he the personification of the rising? Was he simply an unusual product of his own time whose upbringing, beliefs and aims had moulded him into this strange thing I am, as he himself had noted? Similarly, the rising itself continues to both inspire and be a source of anger for many an Irish citizen, be they historian or layman, jaded or patriot. What we have at least demonstrated so far is that it is impossible to judge or assess the rising without placing it in context. While the First World War raged in the background, the figures that took part in the rising were shaped by the ongoing struggle of arms on the continent and the rhetorics and ideologies that it spawned. Life was reduced in value, with the knowledge that every day reports were learned of casualties in the hundreds, then thousands, then tens of thousands. This even before the Battle of the Somme, which would begin on the 1st of July 1916, and see thousands of Irishmen, Unionist and Nationalist alike, die side by side in an atmosphere of wretched waste and aristocratic ignorance. The Battle of Gallipoli from the previous year had already resulted in the deaths of many thousands of Irishmen, with many Anglo-Irish aristocrats themselves, such as W.B. Yeats, forced to confront the reality and prevalence of death once their peers were notified that a father or a son or brother wasn't coming home. We cannot underestimate the impact that such traumas had on Irish society any more than we can on the British equivalent. This will be especially important when we seek to examine the British response to the Rising in future episodes, and assess it in the context of wartime and Britain's national survival. The actual number of Irish serving in the British Army reached around 200,000 according to one figure, another puts it roughly at 150,000 by 1916. 50,000 would join in the first few months of the war alone, with about 90,000 more following them up to 1916. Clearly these are figures that are hard to properly quantify, but harder still is calculating the actual casualties that were suffered by the Irish. Journalist Kevin Myers passionately argued for a figure of 35,000 casualties in his recent work on the Irish participation in the war, Myers argued at the same time that Irish history had treated such soldiers terribly in the years that followed, ignoring their stories altogether since the image of an Irishman fighting for Britain did not fit with the ardent that the rebels sought to build in the months after 1916. For many an Irishman, the Ireland they returned home to after being in Flanders, Gallipoli or elsewhere was a very different place from the one that they had left. Some elected to return to or remain in Britain. Others, perhaps more tragically, hung up their uniform in the back of their wardrobe and declined to speak of their own personal heroism, sacrifice or friends that they had lost ever again. I would be lying if I said that the response of Ireland towards the First World War generation in the months and years after the Rising didn't and doesn't sicken me, especially since I have been to Gallipoli's war graves and seen the burial sites of Irish men men who died in real combat, facing real odds that they did not have a choice in. When I think back to such experiences, and the sobering feeling I got when I happened to encounter the resting place of an Irish life wasted 100 years ago to that day, I cannot help get goosebumps and then burn with a resentful anger. 
Historians often paint them as forgotten, but I'll go one better. They were the betrayed generation. Betrayed because they went out in time of war for the sake of family, for the sake of majority-supported ideas like home rule, or to earn a better living for their children, only to return home with missing limbs or a shattered mind and be told that Ireland was not thankful, and it did not care, because Ireland had new heroes now, and that these new heroes had risen in Dublin while they were all fighting for the Queen's shilling in France. The 10th, 16th as well as the 36th Ulster Divisions constituted the bulk of the Irish contribution to Britain's war effort. Some battalions within these were completely wiped out over the course of the war. We don't know enough of these men's names, but we know more about them than we think. Men that wanted something better, men who wanted adventure, dreamt of societal advancement in a stagnant society controlled by the same families. It is only recently that historians have truly made it their task to afford the same kind of understanding and appreciation for such men that has always been lumped upon the leaders of the Rising. It was only in the last decade, incredibly, that a proper wreath-laying ceremony was carried out to honour Ireland's war dead, just as surely as it was only in the last few years that Britain's Queen Elizabeth II came to Ireland on a mission of peace, reconciliation and understanding. That mission, just like that of those men that went to Gallipoli and left nothing but a headstone in their wake, was a powerful one, because it represented a faith in the system, a willingness to believe in something more than the power of a gun. I hope that this is the message I have thus far been able to communicate. It was one which Irish leaders were probably sick of hearing by the eruption of the First World War, but it was also one that many more had dedicated their lives to, and proved the value of. The money that soldiers were able to send home to their families, the so-called separation allowance, enabled penniless Irish families in the worst of poverty to afford basic luxuries and feed their children. This money engendered a kind of dependence upon it, and created an army of wives that would ferociously defend this life-saving supplement, should it come under threat from, say, an armed rebellion in the capital? When rumours began to emerge at the Rising's beginning and aftermath that the British were going to cut the allowance as punishment, historians have speculated that this rumour was created to sow dissension among the ranks of Dublin's soldier wives and make them resent the British. These women took out their frustrations not on the British representatives that were charged with paying the allowance, but on the rebels who they accredited with the whole situation. Loyalties were not as simple as Irish and therefore anti-British, With their relatives fighting at the front, no matter what empire they fought for, it would have been immensely difficult for these same relatives to declare themselves with the rebels, and therefore with the allies of the rebels, which, as the proclamation hinted, was most likely Germany. So while it might seem strange to see that citizens of Dublin were not merely aghast, but furious at what the rebels had done, we have to place it in the context of Ireland at the time. Ireland was a placid country, where no armed revolution of any kind had occurred for two generations. Literary, cultural and spiritual movements may have suggested or confirmed to many that Ireland was more than a partner of Great Britain, but this did not mean that they supported rebellion against London, or even that they sympathised with the rebels in a kind of romantic way, as some historians have sought to claim. The Rising left Dublin in flames and hundreds dead. It had not been called for by popular opinion, 
and its outbreak even at that stage was recorded as being a stab in the back to the Irishmen fighting abroad. This is how historians are able to claim that the IRB's military council were out of touch with the average Irish citizen. Far more practical concerns motivated the Dublin populace in 1916. Their relatives fighting at the front and their need for emotional and spiritual support, the monetary aid such fighting generated and the simple preoccupation that seeking to live from day to day involved, this meant that the romanticists, the extremists and the ideologues that participated in 1916 were not only unrepresentative of the majority, but were thereafter hounded by them. In the next episode, the narrative takes a time out as I pose an interesting scenario to you guys, designed to make you think and hopefully make you feel like you're getting an even-handed examination of the Rising, rather than a one-sided critique of its participants. I hope you enjoyed this episode, guys, and I'll be seeing you soon. Thanks, and goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.